Greatness is not a function of circumstances. Greatness, it turns out, is largely a matter of conscious choice and discipline. Jim Collins, good to great. Hey friends, welcome back to Intentional Living and Leadership with me, Cal Walters. I am so excited and thankful that you are on this journey with me to grow, to be more intentional, and to become a better leader. If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, please hit that subscribe button so you'll be notified each time there's a new episode. Also, a special thank you, as always, to those that have rated the podcast, shared the podcast, given written reviews, and you're helping us grow. Thank you so much. And a special thank you to those that have given me feedback, good or bad especially those that are helping this podcast get better, helping me get better, helping me fill in my blind spots. One of the things that I'm really trying to do this year, and I've talked about this before, is to try to be more coachable and more teachable. And a big part of that is getting feedback and soliciting feedback. So please, you're not going to hurt my feelings. And if you do, I'm going to get over it. Please give me feedback. I'm asking for it. I want to be better. So don't hold back. Give me some give me some stuff that I can use to make this a better product and more valuable for people out there. Also, for show notes, go to calwalters.me, just my name.me. You can also sign up there for email updates and newsletters on topics that we cover on this podcast. Today, friends, I am super pumped to bring you an interview I did with the first person that ever introduced me to this concept of high performance, and that is Dr. Joe Ross. Dr. Ross introduced me to that back in 2007 at West Point. Joe is a 1995 West Point graduate. He was a three-year letter winner as an Army football player at West Point. He was the co-captain of the 1994 Army football team. During his career as an infantry officer, Joe managed all logistics for over 1,000 personnel. He directed human resources for over 4,000 personnel, and he even helped write the Soldier's Creed. If you've ever served in the Army, you've probably heard the Soldier's Creed. Back in 2009, Joe joined the Army football coaching staff as a special teams and fullback coach, where he helped lead Army football to the the 2010 Armed Forces Bowl victory. Joe has a master's in education in psychology and athletic counseling from Springfield College. He also has a PhD in industrial and organizational psychology from Walden University. He is the president and co-founder of Higher Echelon Incorporated, which is a human and organizational performance consulting firm headquartered in Arlington, Virginia. Joe provides leadership training and coaching to groups like eBay, Merck, executive MBA programs, Dartmouth University Athletic Department, just to name a few. He has also consulted with NFL teams about state-of-the-art technology to enhance their coaching and their player learning. He also previously served as the director of the Military Enhancement Program at West Point. He also served on a presidential committee to review and design procedures for wounded warriors in transition. He also, interestingly, teaches a week-long course with military generals and admirals to help them optimize their transition from the military to civilian life, and we discussed that during this interview. We also discussed his tips on high performance, how to have a mental edge, his keys to leadership, among many other fun topics. This was a really neat interview. I learned a lot. So please enjoy this wide-ranging interview with Dr. Joe Ross. Hey, Joe, welcome to the show. Hey, Kat, how are you doing? Thanks for having me today. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. It's an honor to, to look across the screen and see you. Uh, I'm not sure if you remember this, but I, I was in one of your classes back when I was a cadet at West Point. And it was the uh, first- RS 101? 
<laughs> RS101. That's it. There you go. <laughs> uh, and I think I think that class actually saved me as a cadet. I was, of course, trying to figure out how to manage all the different assignments and all the different deadlines. And your class taught me this calendar method where we would take all the different assignments and we would color code them. And I honestly think that saved me. I still use that method to this day. So I want to publicly thank you for teaching me a little bit about uh, how to manage my own life. Uh, but really, that was my first introduction to the idea of high performance, the idea that you could have a different mindset and emotional competencies to improve your performance. And mm. so that was, that was really cool. So it's an honor for me to, to get to talk to you today about uh, what you do now with leadership development. But I'd love to start by asking you a little bit about your background. Uh, some of the people and maybe some of the experiences that influenced you before you even became a cadet at West Point. So I was wondering if you could just talk, you know, people, experiences, anything that helped shape you before you showed up as cadet Joe Ross at West Point. All right. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, probably, you know, I got a handful of people I think influenced me the most as a, a kid. You know, I grew up, the, I have a twin brother. And we were the youngest of six kids, and we grew up in Western Maryland. But during that time, you know, as the youngest, my, you know, my sisters are like 10, 11 years older, and my brother is seven years older. You know, part of that is just watching them grow up, because you get to see what they did and didn't do, and you heard their stories over and over, and you're like, okay, I'm not going to do that, or I am going to do that. So you learn from your brothers and sisters. Uh, you know, my parents were extremely hardworking. My dad worked seven days a week. 365 days a year, you know, just to, so we could go to a Catholic education. You know, my mom went back to school at the age of 42 when I was just six, you know, to get her uh, nursing degree and then master's in nursing and then master's wow. administration. So she was big in education and pushing us towards education. Wow. So that was a big influence, you know, just getting an education and, you know, always uh, striving for A's in school and so forth. Probably the first coach that had a great impact on me was uh, sixth-grade basketball. His name's Pat Ingram, and Pat had a big influence on me just to compete and to win, but always to do the little things, the fundamentals, and he was big on the fundamentals. But then he became our football coach in seventh and eighth grade. Wow. Uh, so, so basically, I was with this guy, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Uh, either he was coaching me football or basketball. I always say because of his coaching, his leadership, his persistence, his demanding attitude is why I was successful later on in life. And then when I got into high school, my high school football coach, uh, Wally Maley, who passed away uh, probably five, six years ago, he played for Syracuse and then played for the Green Bay Packers. And he played under Vince Lombardi. Wow. Uh, you know, the, there's a reason for all these stories. So my mom was, you know, Always harping on where there's a will, there's a way. So basically, if you believe, you can do it. If you believe in God, you can accomplish anything. You know, Coach Maley would always tell us to fall asleep dreaming about big plays, making big tackles, and, you know, seeing yourself being successful. Coach Ingram was always telling me, hey, don't worry about your size. You're the best one out there. Look at Joe Moore. Look at all these other athletes out there that are short but successful, and you can be the best. And then my dad just exemplified hard work, you know, just dedication. So then, you know, fast forward and I got to West Point, you know, I was a recruited athlete and you know, I had to go to the prep school. And what was unique about, you know, going to the prep school, it was a fun year, but you're also, you're 
disassociated from the academy because we lived, we were in New Jersey at the time. Okay. Um, it wasn't at the academy. So you're isolated for that year. But you made a lot of great friends. You know, I was a team captain and uh, offense MVP of the prep school. Fast forward, we go into, into West Point, and my buddy and I, Rick Roper, who was the, he ended up being the starting quarterback, we both had to try out like we were walk-ons. And it was a transition between Coach Young and Coach Sutton. And we kind of looked at each other like, man, we just came from the prep school. We were, you know, team captains there, MVP there. Why are we walking on? Like, we were, we were, so it was, you know, it was an eye-opening experience. So anyway, I mean, we made the team, and you know, I ended up playing as a freshman. Roper ended up starting as a sophomore. But we we uh, we were associated with a guy. His name was Colonel Lewis Choka, and he ended up being doctor. He was Doctor Lewis Choka, but he taught sports psychology. So the Center for Enhanced Performance, where I taught you reading and study skills, he started the program. So from '87 to '89, it was just a pilot, and the, and the center only worked with athletes. When I showed up in 91, it, it worked with the football team, basketball team, wrestling team, baseball team. And in 93, it just started working with academics as you knew it. But so anyway, because of my background, when Colonel Choka told us about what CEP was and high performance, I was like, oh, I've been doing this all my whole life. You know, this is, this is Coach Maley talking to me. This is <laughs> Coach Ingram talking to me. This is, you know, visualizing and setting goals and hard work. I mean, I knew, you know. So I immediately jumped into it and started doing it as a, as a plea. And I did it all four years. And I always say, you know, I was, you know, I was average speed, average size. But, you know, I played for four years and was a team captain my senior year and offensive MVP because of the mental part of the game. I, th- I always thought I was mentally tougher than anyone else. And I could grind anyone else out. And I could beat you. I could beat you mentally. You know, I might not be as fast. I might not be as big as strong. But, you know, I could definitely beat anyone. And I, and I continue to think that way today that there's no one going to out mentally tough me, uh, you know, ranger school, anything so that goes to my background of, you know, how I was raised and the people I was socialized with and the experiences, you know, I, I went with, uh, there's those different coaches and my parents. Wow. Long inter- introduction about my background. But. No, that's fascinating. It's fascinating <laughs> to hear that. I, d- I didn't know that about you. Um, obviously I've, I've been around you. I've been taught by you and I've, I've uh, learned about high performance from you early. Um, so it's neat to hear that that's kind of where that comes for you. And even that you were employing that as a cadet and as an army football player. I wanted to ask you about football because that seems to be a thread throughout your bio is, you know, playing football, coaching football now with the, or the go army edge program, kind of using sports as a way to think about and visualize what are some of the biggest leadership lessons that you've learned from your time as whether a player, a coach, thinking about sports? I'm just kind of curious off the bat, what, what are some of the biggest lessons that you think you've pulled from your experience with sports? That's another good question. Um, I think, you know, well, football or any sport, basketball, I, mean, I, I played them all growing up, basketball, football, baseball, track. Um, I think what you learn is you learn everyday lessons in the moment. You know, how do you deal with failure? How do you deal with success? How do you deal with hard work? How do you deal with setback? How do you, how do you deal with a sudden change? How do you deal with uh, a, a moment of greatness and then a moment of failure right behind it? You know, so sports puts that in your face immediately. And, and that's the power of, you know, really high performance is understanding how to deal with those moments. And, you know, step one is having the right attitude. Step two is, you know, maintaining the right energy, 
you, you call it effort or whatever it is, but it's really it's an energy level that you need. And then step three is your focus and you know where to put your eyes, where to put your mind, but really how to react to the situation. And if you understand it, the only thing you control is how you react, uh, then you can adapt quicker and you can get yourself back in the moment and perform as the best you. And I think sports taught me that over my life. Uh, again, as a, as, a, as a young kid playing in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade football to, you know, playing at West Point, that it always seemed to resonate. And, and, and the fact of belief, uh, and this is where it goes back to coaching. When I was in seventh grade, I could make things happen. What I mean by that is I would get so angry as a seventh grader and Coach Ingram would yell at me in the middle of the game. And I would get so angry, but I would get so focused that I could have like a 95-yard touchdown run. And you'd go, why did you do that the whole game? I'm like, well, <laughs> you put me in the right mindset at that moment, at that time. And I started realizing that. And I started seeing how you could do it. And uh, I can reflect back on those different things, those different times of my life. So I'm curious, you talk, you're talking about the mental edge that you had back early. Did you internalize what was happening? Did you, I mean, now that you teach this and you teach programs and classes and you work with organizations, at the time, did you appreciate what was happening and kind of the unique distinction that you had in your mind and your mental strength? I definitely appreciate it, but I wasn't making the connection to like sports psychology or high performance. I was just making the connection to my faith. You know, like I said, I was raised Catholic and anytime something like that would happen, I was like, oh, God's watching over me and God's protecting me. But you know, there is a connection between high performance and faith and how you believe and how you see things and how you visualize things and how you create a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I, I normally want to, all the time when I'm teaching, I, I keep the disconnection, but in my own life, I strongly believe there is a connection. And uh, actually, this is the first time actually I'm sharing this. <laughs> no, I think that's cool. I, I feel the same uh, way. Uh, that I, I make that connection. And I, I didn't, growing up from, Sixth, seventh, eighth grade, all through high school, it was faith driven. It was God watching over me. It was a mental toughness. It was my mom telling me how I should think. My coaches telling me how I should think, and I just listened. And I and I watched my brothers and sisters. When I got to West Point, that's when the light bulb went off. I was like, oh, this is all the stuff that all these people have been talking about, and there's actually a systematic program with it. So, plebe year, when I got that first conversation from. Uh, Colonel Choka is when I realized, oh, there is a system of high performance that you can learn these skills and it's not accidental. So if you were to meet with someone today and you were to kind of sit down with them and try to build that mental strength in them, you know, let's say you're, you're walking into a room and you're meeting with someone who's maybe doesn't have that kind of mental strength. What are some of the things that you would begin to teach them and coach them and and help them think through maybe what are some questions you might ask? Because I think some of us maybe gain that kind of mental strength through experience, but do you think it's something you can, you can teach and coach? And, and how do you do that? Oh, it's definitely something you can teach and coach. And it's definitely something you can learn. You know, our model is lead yourself. And when you understand how to lead yourself, then you can lead others. So we're all leaders. In high performance, what makes high performance successful is when an individual understands to lead themselves to be consistent and deliberate about applying the right behaviors consistently in every different. So confidence, how do, how do you think? Um, goal setting, are you deliberate with 
how you set up the daily tasks, weekly tasks to accomplish your goals. You know, focus, are you deliberate with how you use routines or keywords or how you put yourself in the moment or how you react to the situation. To visualization, you know, we can visualize at any moment. You just close your eyes and see yourself doing it. From mm -hmm. visualizing a, a transition out of the army to what your next life is gonna look like, to transitioning or to visualizing how to do a negotiation, to giving a speech, to playing football, to whatever it is, whatever that task is, you can visualize it. And the visualization creates confidence, creates belief, creates a sense of deja vu. Uh, and actually, it's been proven that you're creating neurons in your body and your body doesn't know what's real or, or fake. And it gets you ready for the moment. And then the last piece is energy. And, and I had mentioned that before, but how you control your breath. That's one of the simplest things. Your breath is a skill, and the more rhythmic you make your breath, the more you can put yourself in the moment to allow yourself to trust yourself to perform at a high level. So um, there's a bunch of different techniques, and that, that's basically what I would say to you know, a room full of people that are interested in high performance. And then we break it down. Okay, how do we, how do we attack it? Do you, you mentioned breathing. What are the, what's maybe the most common or what is one of the most common ways to learn how to do those breathing exercises or uh, controlling your breathing? Well, I think that's great. I, so when you're a young kid, what do your coaches say? Take a deep breath before a foul shot. When you get up to bat, take a deep breath. You know, before swimming event, you know, take some deep breaths. They're always telling you to breathe, right? But as you get older, people forget about it. Yeah. You know, you're breathing. And why are they telling you to take a deep breath? I'm telling you to take a deep breath because when you breathe from your, your stomach, right, and you get a nice rhythm going, it really puts your parasympathetic and your sympathetic nervous system into harmony. Uh, so that's the science behind it. And just a couple deep breaths. So the more you practice that skill, it becomes automatic. And I'm talking about breathing like you're walking around. I'm talking about rhythmic breathing, two seconds in, two seconds out, or four seconds in or four seconds out. And so now when you're in high-pressure situations, you know how to breathe appropriately so that you stay calm, you stay focused, and you can think clearly to make the right decisions. So just that one skill can do all those things. Wow. That's so neat. I, I was, that makes me think about, uh, I remember the last time I was prosecuting a case and I was, was right to about to give my closing argument. My heart started to beat. You know, I see the panel over there, the jury. I'm about to get in front of all these senior officers and tell them. It's such a big moment. And I remember doing that. I don't remember why I thought that, but I just kind of did some very deliberate breathing and it really changed my, the way my body felt. It made me feel more composed. So it's neat, and I, and I appreciate you sharing just such a practical way for someone to kind of get their mind and their body in sync and ready to perform at a higher level. That's, that's really helpful. So you mentioned leading yourself, and I love that. So the, the name of this podcast is Intentional Living and Leadership. So it's kind of two, two part. It's the first part's about, I think, really self-leadership. It's about living an intentional life, and then the second part is about more organizational leadership. So I'm curious, what are some of the things that you do personally? Because you can, you've continued to perform at a very high level, you know, the co-founder, president of Higher Echelon now. What are some things that you do in your own life to lead yourself and keep yourself at that, at that high level? I think I try to surround myself with good people. And what I mean by that is uh, when you surround yourself with good people, you're always having intellectual conversations. Uh, and that, that can be people from the high performance world, that could be people from the military world, that could be people, people from the, the corporate world. 
So I, I, I do use LinkedIn just to connect with people and, and to have those conversations. And I think on a regular basis, I'm, I'm interacting with other leaders, other corporate members, other military people, just, just to have intellectual conversations. That's, that's one thing. Another thing is I like to read like Harvard's, Harvard Business Review or uh, I get these different email things that I subscribe to that they pop up. And normally it's about uh, organizational leadership or high performance or just tips of the day to be a consistent, consistent leader. And again, that just gets your mind flowing about, okay, how do, how do I apply it? And how do we apply it as an organization? And if I like something, I'll send it out to the whole company. Hey, hey, why don't we think about this and how are we using it today? You know, then you're always going to conferences. You know, I'm still going to um, the Association of Sports Psychology, the Industrial Organizational Society of Psychology conferences. So those kind of things that you're, you're constantly going. So more every day is just the, the conversations I get into and then um, reading quick messages from online or Harvard's Business Review. I, I like to get the magazines too. They'll come to the mail. No, that's awesome. Are you, are you big into routines or are you fairly fluid with the way you spend your mornings and your evenings? No, I'm pretty, well, both. I'm regimented where, you know, I have a family, so, you know, I'm, I know I'm getting up. I know I'm taking my kids to school. Uh, my son is in sophomore year in high school. So every other day I take him to the gym at 530 and make sure he gets his lift in, you know, because wow. he plays football. Uh, you know, I'm usually at work between certain hours and I know I have to, hit certain people during different parts of the day. Um, you know, then the afternoon I'm either, I, I coach again. So now I coach football or basketball myself to my teams. And then usually in the afternoon I'll go home, eat dinner, and I'm back on the internet uh, or online working and catch up for different parts of the day. So it's regimented, but it's still pretty flexible. And I also travel a lot. So I travel to my client's location. So like for the first part of the year, I think I've been gone the first four weeks out of six weeks so far this year. So that changes your routine as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so one of the things that you do with higher echelon is, uh, you know, you work, sounds like you work with organizations, teams, kind of speaking to organizational leadership and developing leaders. What are some of the most important attributes in your mind to having an effective leader and maybe, and I don't even, you might even challenge the assumption of that question. I, do you think there are uh, certain attributes that make leaders specifically more effective across the board? Uh, I think there's one attribute. If the leader possesses it, I think it's the best attribute anyone could ever have. Uh, when leaders show that they care. Hmm. Hands down, I don't care if you're a general, I don't care if you're a CEO, I don't care if you're a a surgeon at a hospital, whatever it is, when you show that you care, you're going to gain respect. You're going to gain the effort from your team members and you're going to get buy-in a lot faster than people that kind of hold back and don't show that they care. And then there's a difference. You can see it. Uh, I don't know if general Kasman, uh, who just retired, he was a superintendent at West Point. He's now the president at uh, university of South Carolina. He's been a mentor of mine since I was a company commander back in, 1999 and uh, he's an advisor to higher echelon but he was the first one to ever teach me that was doesn't matter how smart you are technically or tactically or how physically good you are if you don't care about people then you're not going to make it and i at that rule for the last 25 years has applied and i 
agree 100%. I like, I think that's neat too. Cause I mean, you have a PhD, uh, you obviously have studied all the science, you've studied all the, the data and, and to still to come back to the idea that fundamental to being an effective leader is that you care. I think that's, that's really significant. Do you find that there are some leaders who maybe care, but just aren't good at showing it? Uh, Cause I, I, it seems to me when I reflect back on my own leadership, sometimes I just get so caught up in my, the task I have to accomplish in a given day, deadlines, pressure from the top. I mean, are there any, is there any advice you would give to leaders to, to show that they care? Cause sometimes maybe you do care, but you're just not great at showing it. Um, I don't know. Take that anywhere you'd like. You ask some tough questions. <laughs> um, I think if you care, you will show it somehow. What I mean by that is, you can express caring a lot of different ways. You can verbally express caring by putting your arm around a person's shoulder and asking them how they're doing. You can express caring on how you, just your work effort and how you attack problems because you know you have to get this task done. And if you don't, it's going to impact the rest of your team members. That shows people that you can. You can show people how you care just by saying, hey, you know what, you, you deserve two hours off or a day off or whatever. You show people how you care by if you want to give them a birthday card. Uh, There's just so many different ways to show people how you care. I don't think there's one way to show people. So I think it goes by someone's personality. But you also know if if you truly care, right? Are you making the effort to uh, go the extra distance uh, because their morale, their balance of life, their performance means something to you that you will sacrifice some way to show that. And when I may say sacrifice, sacrifice can be a strong word. You can sacrifice in a lot of different ways. Are you able to tell pretty quickly when you see an organization, whether the leader truly cares just based on the, the team and the morale of the team? I think you can. I think you can tell because it, it depends on the team members, how far they want to go, right? If you're in a stressful situation and, and the team doesn't believe that the leader cares and they'll quit and, and they'll give in and they'll just say, we'll just wait this guy out or girl out. So yeah, you can, you can tell pretty quick. I was looking at your your website, and one of the things, that, one of the models that you seem to use at higher echelon is the resilient and adaptable leadership model. Can yep. you tell us a little bit about that, and and kind of how you teach people to implement that? Yeah, so um, I actually started developing the resilient and adaptable leader when I got out of the army. So I was medically retired in '08. And I had the privilege of starting basically the Army's high performance. So you had West Point's high performance, which you attended. It was the Center for Enhanced Performance. And we wanted to replicate that through the whole Army. So basically from 03 to 08, that was my mission. Uh, General Saseki said, hey, how do, we def- how do we create this war ethos? And um, I showed the West Point, and I said, hey, I know how to do this. Because I did it when I was a commander. So I helped write the Soldier's Creed. That was the first thing was like every soldier needs to have the mindset of the warrior. It wasn't about changing uniforms. It wasn't about training. It was about your mindset. Then I would go to every unit. So third ID, 101st, striker units. And I would spend six weeks there and I would train them up on the mental part of the game before they deployed. And this is 04, 05, 06, right? But I, I couldn't sustain the effort. So then we put a... Uh, plan together of, okay, how do you operationalize this? How do you replicate the CEP at West Point, the Center for Enhanced Performance at West Point for the Army? So wrote a 100-page white paper, put the financial piece together for it, and the Army approved it. And we started setting up 
these centers across the army. And then I get out of the army because I was medically retired myself. I'm 100% disabled from a bad airborne job. So I started reflecting. I said, like, okay, I have all this experience. I want to have the same model as Center for Enhanced Performance. But what is something more organizational? And that's when we came up with the Resilient and Adaptable Leader. And uh, so then I made my dissertation about it. So my dissertation was examining 400 military, no, 200 military leaders versus 200 corporate leaders. And the leaders were anywhere from zero to one years in the army or in the corporate world, all the way up to people that were in the army 30 years to the corporate world 30 years. And then looking at a set of skills, you know, attributes and behaviors of high performance and how does it, how does it compare? What I learned was in the corporate world, when you start, the corporate world is actually ahead of the military officers from a resilient adaptive leader standpoint. What I mean by that is because they're, they're scraping, they're trying to figure it out, they're changing jobs, you know, they're trying to get new jobs. So they got to set their own goals. They got to they got to understand how to deal with adversity. They have to be able to visualize a couple jobs ahead to see where they want to go to get this career going. Well, the military is kind of different. You know, you walk in the military and your first seven years is kind of planned for you, right? You choose yeah. your branch, go through it. You got your different uh, uh, schools, like airborne school, ranger school. But, you know, it's those are tough. But you kind of know if you're infantry, you're going through the schools. They're not a lot of thinking behind it, right? You really don't start thinking about your military career until about eight or nine years into it. You say, okay, well, I can do a lot of different things from a career path, a functionary path to a, an academic path, right? You start Then you start choosing. So over time, you see that these corporate leaders that were really resilient in the beginning – and the military, who was not as resilient, flip-flops about at year eight. And the military leaders become more and more resilient and adaptable versus the corporal. Because once you get into the corporal, your uh, kind of your path, you kind of know where you're going, right? You've, you've seen the challenges, you know how to handle the challenges. Where the military, you're constantly going back to school, and every new job changes, and your path changes. And you have to start setting new goals, and you have to visualize new experiences, and so it sets you up for more success. So that just fascinated me, this, this whole resilient adaptive leader. So it kind of, it proved to me too that you can learn the skills and apply it to your job. And the reason I say it again, so military does a really good job constantly teaching those skills every two to three years. Every time a military officer or enlisted soldier goes back to school, they're always, they're always reflecting. Where in the corporate world, you don't go back to school. You just keep doing your job, right? So how do you teach those skills and behaviors that we know work from a resilience standpoint and adaptable standpoint to allow you to deal with adversity? And, and honestly, the corporate world is just as adverse and just as complex as the military world. Just they're different, right? But the skills to attack them are the same. So that's how I got into it, just from wow. that whole process. So when you go into an organization, let's say, for example, I'm going to be leading a team of about 10 prosecutors this summer. If you were to walk into that organization and try to coach us and teach us, what are some of the things that you would look at, look for? What are some, some areas that you might examine, some things you might focus on? And what I'm really getting at is what, what is an organizational leader coach? How do you build a team or assess a team? And what are some commonalities in, in how you train these organizations to, to increase their performance? Yeah, so our model is a model. It's a starting point. So the resilient adaptive leader is a starting point. So when we go to, if we went to your organization, we would observe for a week. What, what are you doing? What are you doing now that works? What are you doing that is right? What, are you, what have you done in the past for a, a learning standpoint or a growth standpoint? And then we'd also look what's not working. Where are the obstacles? Where are the challenges? Where are the, where are the roadblocks? So we don't want to replicate something you've already done or something that's already worked. So we put our focus area on those challenges, those obstacles, those roadblocks 
to bring that along. Uh, and that's where you, you have to think outside the box and be creative. So, all right, here, here's the things we think you need to do. Here's the things we need to work on. Let's just have a, uh, a two-day workshop just on those things to bring everyone together so we have the same baseline. We're going to reinforce what you're already doing right. The reinforcement, though, is just a group conversation among everyone saying, hey, we recognize this was doing right. We learned the skills over here. But then you really change the behaviors through executive coaching or group coaching, following up, listening to different leaders saying, hey, I'm trying this. This new technique's working, or I'm using these behaviors now at home and at work, and uh, it's making me a more effective leader. People are listening to me, and I'm listening to others. So th that would kind of be the, the process. It can be short-term to long-term. Hmm. The key is you got to have the, the executive coaching. You got to have the follow-up. You never want to go in and just give a, a two-day workshop or a team-building exercise and never have follow-up because, yeah, it sounds great, but it's hard for people to change behaviors overnight, right? Holding them accountable to change the behaviors to what right looks like. And we always set it up for the team that we're working with. They set the, the conditions. They set the standards. They set what right looks like from their own image. We are just the coaches. So once they set the standards and once they say this is what right looks like, then we just enforce the standards that they just told us and what right looks like. So then we become a coach. So it's just like being a football coach. Are there any common issues that you see as you go into these organizations? Uh, biggest common issue, and it doesn't matter what organization it is, people just work in silos. You know, people quickly get in these stovepipes or silos and, you know, they come to work, they sit down on their computer, and because everything's technology-driven, you have your phone, you have your computer, that you can sit here and you forget about the rest of the world. If you're forgetting about the rest of the world, you forget about the other teams. And you're not cross-talking. You're not understanding what the other team members' problems are. Uh, you're just not taking time to communicate how to work better. And sometimes it's just stepping back and having those communications. And, and that's where we say our niche is. Our niche is everyone can work in a silo, but how do you use how do you use processes? How do you use technology? And how do you understand human performance to bring them together? Right? Because when they intersect. That's when you drive organizational excellence, right? You're never going to get rid of technology. You're never going to, and you have to have processes because processes make you more efficient. But then you got to have a human. The human is leading the way and leading the charge. And when they work together, magic happens. I don't care if it's a football team. I don't care if it's a, a Fortune 500 company or a hospital or a, pharma, a pharmaceutical company. When those three things come together, you always drive organizational excellence. It's magical. It's happening. It's awesome. And people get a smile on their face and they're like, man, like, this wasn't hard. It's not hard. It's just putting it <laughs> Yeah. And I'm sure having someone just kind of come in and look at their team objectively is a valuable exercise. What is, is there any like, you know, maybe good first step? Let's say I have a team who is siloed. What's maybe like a good first step into bringing people more together and getting them out of those silos? Well, there's, di there's different techniques just for that specifically, but a good first step. Or, by, or anything you've seen work. I think a good first step. By, by me or by the leader? leader? By the leader, yeah. I think by the leader, a good first step would just be let's have an open conversation. And if, if there's fear about consequences that people open up, then, okay, have, have people put anonymous ideas into a piece of paper where there's no name on it, put it in a box, and then mm. 
maybe have a conversation about that. But you got to get people together and have a have a conversation and listen to what their concerns are, what the uh, uh, what their fears are. You know, what do they think they could be better? People usually have an idea. They just don't want to share. Hmm. Um, so that's the first step: is bring people together and start talking. Yeah, yeah, that place for that is just deliberately having socials. You know, if you just have a quarterly social and just go around and have people talk and have open conversations, you do it casually, and then you learn things. Hmm. And then you, you can make small tweaks. So that's yeah. uh, that's one way to influence it. I saw one of the things that you focus on is leading through change or helping organizations lead through change. Uh, what is what are some practical thing uh, tips that you give or things that areas you focus on in helping teams lead through change? Yeah, so the world is always changing. Every organization is always changing. Um, the first thing is what we just talked about before: communicate, communicate, communicate. You know, some organizations they want to keep all the information right until the change goes all the way through. Well, then that creates anxiety. That creates um, infighting it creates is hostility because the, the rest of the team doesn't know what's going on. So the more we can communicate what's going on, the plan, the concerns, and you're hearing everyone's voice, then you're moving as one. So that's the first step is just communicate, communicate, communicate. Um, the second step is what kind of uh, processes are you implementing, right, through this change? The third step is um, understanding the culture, right, and what's the culture of the organization because change usually means that you're probably gonna either bring new people on or you're gonna have to let people go. That's tough with change, right? So how do you deal with that? Again, so that's the culture of the organization to go through that process on both ends, right? And normally the first part of that, so say you have an acquisition, usually an acquisition means you're gonna lose people. Then as the acquisition is successful, you're gonna gain people. That means you have two sets of new people on both sides, right? And if you have a strong culture, you can drive through that change pretty fluidly. If you don't have a strong culture, it's going to be a train wreck. And you're going to be all over the map and so forth. So uh, identifying the culture, identifying the mindset of the organization up front, and then communicating it over and over, and then not holding anything back. The information campaign to constantly educate everyone on the team. This is the process. This is where we're going. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it seems to me just based on my experience, change is just tough. I think humans just kind of, we tend to resist change. Uh, and I think, oh, yeah. seem, and there's that challenge too, that dichotomy of we as humans resist change, but the leader's job is to kind of lead through change and oftentimes create change. So right. I, I, I think that's really and helpful. You said to, it. It's the leader's job. Well, it's my job. Like, what do I need to tell you about? What do I need to tell the team about it? Well, maybe there's some teammates. There's probably people on your team that have good ideas. Right. And get their ideas, right? Yeah. And yeah. then don't think that they're not going through anxiety or they're not, they're, they want to, they're fighting change too. Yeah. Um, so, so we're kind of wrapping up here. Um, I wanted to, I guess, a couple of questions, maybe, maybe towards the end. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit so that there's some listeners, a number of listeners who are, either currently serving in the military or are already on their way out. I've seen from LinkedIn, it appears to me that you've been working and helping uh, even some flag officers through the transition process. So uh, I wonder if you tell us a little bit about that and just what advice you would give to, to military personnel who are transitioning to the civilian world. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate. I teach um, the general officer transition course. It's a week, week long course, five times a year. 
and I teach the flag officer training for the Navy, uh, which is six times a year. Um, and I, I really, I don't, I don't care where anyone is in transition. I think there's three main principles. First of all, when you're transitioning, you, the person needs to figure out their purpose, their why, right? They need to understand their passion and strengths, and that leads that will lead into the purpose and why. Where do they want to move location? And then I always say salary. What happens normally is we chase the salary. We can we can live anywhere because of our society nowadays, and we ignore our purpose or why or our passions or strengths. And right? we just ignore it. We'll figure it out. And when you do that, you're not going to be happy in that first job. You're going to change jobs. You're going to kind of be lost. So we really hit those three things hard. Uh, and we tell them it's the tighter you can make that shot group of purpose and location and salary, the more successful you will be. And I say, don't chase the money. You know, the money is there to maintain your current standard of living, right? So whatever you're doing today, maintain that current standard of living. But if you get a job for your purpose and identifying your purpose and your why in an area where you want to be with friends and family or you and your own family want to live in that location, everything else will work itself out. And, there, and there's ways to get to that. And it's not easy to identify your purpose and why. We take them through a week-long exercise to get to it when the light bulb goes off. And I love teaching the classes because the light bulb finally goes off on the second to last day. And I always tell them up front, it's not going to make sense to you until the last day. And when the, finally the light bulb goes off, they all smile like, man, we knew you said this on day one. We didn't believe it, but now the light bulb's off and we get it. Uh, so wow. that's the big three right there. Location, salary, and purpose. And the tighter that shot group, everything will, will, will be fine. Wow. Transition is always happening. Just because you're, if you transition out of the military, you transition to another job. Right? Well, don't think that's it. Because guess what? The more success you have, now people want you. So you'll probably transition again. And then you transition again because you might want to retire from that job, right? So there's, there's, there's four or five transitions we go through in life. And every time, it's you're in control. And that's the other thing. You're in control. Don't listen to the Joneses. Don't listen to your friends. What do you want to do, right? If you get influenced by other people, then you're going to be chasing your tail nonstop. So that's why you got to figure out that purpose and why and go that way. I don't know if that's helpful or not, but. No, that's, that's helpful for me. I know. And I, you know, we all transition at some point. I think that's a really good point too, that just cause you, uh, that transition is not just a one-time thing. It's going to continue to be throughout your life. So Joe, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I'm curious, are there any books that you, uh, that have particularly impacted you over the years? Any books that you maybe have gifted more than others that you think have really helped you? Yeah, I got a, I got a whole bunch of books over here. Um, you know, I like to read high performance books. So, uh, first of all, Good to Great is a good book. You know, Jim Collins. Built the Last is another Jim Collins. Um, I like uh, Putting Out of Your Mind by Bob Bob Rotella. There's another great book that was written in the 70s, so you just got to deal with it. it. was written in the 70s. But it's The Inner Game of Tennis. And I think Tim Galloway wrote that. But The Inner Game of Tennis really gets into the – the knit noise of how to lead yourself. It's really about high performance, you know, from a mindset, from your beliefs to your motivation, to your, how you self-evaluate, to how you self-regulate. It's a little bit more rigid, but it's a good book. There's one by, it's called Hockey, Hockey Tough by 
Saul Miller, Saul Miller. Another good one is mental toughness, which Pete Carroll helped write. I forget the sports psychology that was with him. So I'm always, oh, and uh, Heads Up Baseball by Ken Revisa. Ken Revisa was an awesome sports psychologist. He just passed away two years ago. Uh, he worked with the Cubs and Tampa Bay, Devil Ray, taught at uh, Cal State Fullerton. So his books are good too because he really gets the practical point of the mindset and high performance and how you can learn these skills. Those are the skills. Those are the kind of books I read. Wow, that's neat. Uh, those are a lot of those I haven't read. I'll make sure for the listeners out there. I'll make sure and put links to all of those books in the show notes at my website, calwalters.me. Joe, as as we're wrapping up here, any parting advice or any, uh, I guess, just um, anything else you'd like to say to the audience before we before we wrap up here? No, okay, I really enjoyed the conversation today. Glad you thought of me and reached out to me. And you know, I think like we said, leadership's about caring. And high performance is about determining what your measure of success is and what your standards are. And if you define your standards and your measure of success, uh, then you you can kind of lay out the path of where you want to go and how you can visualize it and where to put your focus on for that success. It takes self-reflection, it takes confidence, and it takes the ability to self-regulate for every time you have an adverse situation to you. Because we're all going to have adverse situations. That's my party ways. No, that's great. That's great. And Joe, where's the best place for people to connect with you? Uh, or if they want to get more information about Higher Echelon, where's the best place to find more information about Higher Echelon? Uh, you go to our website, uh, higherechelon.com, or you can look me up on LinkedIn, Joe.Ross or Joe Ross on LinkedIn. So those are two best places. Awesome. Well, Joe, Twitter, th- but we're not very big on Twitter. So. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Well, Joe, I, I sincerely appreciate your time. Uh, I've learned a lot from you in the past and I still do today. Thank you for parting your wisdom on us today. And uh, for all the listeners out there, thank you for, for listening. And uh, Joe, maybe we'll have to have you back on. I, I wish there were so many things I wanted to ask you about and it's just neat to, to see what you're doing and, and the, the awesome training you're giving your, your teams and, uh, and the listeners today. So thank you so much. All right, Cal. Appreciate it. Have a good day. See ya. Yeah, you too. Hey friends, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joe Ross. I loved getting to sit down with him and just pick his brain. There were so many questions I had for him that we just didn't get to. I hope if you enjoyed this, please share it with someone. Please share it via social media or just text someone the episode or just tell someone about it. Also, if you really enjoyed this, I would just ask, please give us some feedback. Either send me a note, go to my website, leave a comment. You can leave a review on Apple Podcasts, either a written review, let us know what you thought, or you can also leave a rating on Apple Podcast That really helps us get more exposure and it allows us to know what you thought, good or bad. Uh, also, I just want to leave you with this thought this week as you head out. What is maybe one moment or one opportunity this week that you could stop and utilize that deep, deliberate breathing that Joe talked about? Maybe you find yourself feeling anxious or stressed or struggling with something. Maybe just take a moment, do some deliberate deep breathing and see how that impacts you. Go and have a great week and remember life is short. Let's make it count.